Paul warned the Colossians not to be taken captive by human tradition, but what about when God gives you a tradition? Baptism and communion are considered the two ordinances which Jesus established as essential for his church. In baptism, we publicly display our individual relationship to Christ. In communion, we publicly display our corporate relationship to Christ. And so I want to give you a definition. There's the first thing in your notes there. The definition is communion or the Lord's Supper is the church's act of fellowshipping with Christ and each other through the bread and wine or juice. Different churches use wine. We use juice. Communion is the Lord's Supper. It's the church's act of fellowshipping with Christ and each other through the bread and the wine or juice. And Jesus says we're supposed to do this in remembrance of him. So I want to share with you four reasons that we regularly take communion and what we remember with it. Reason number one, to remember the sinlessness of our Lord. To remember the sinlessness of our Lord. And this should give us a look within. The sinlessness of our Lord. Communion, as we know it, reaches all the way back to Egypt when the Israelites were captive. And God had sent nine plagues because Pharaoh refused to let Israel worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, the, as the tenth plague of the firstborn son dying was about to be underway, God told the Israelites to pick a spotless lamb, to slit its throat, to catch the blood, and to put it on the threshold of the house. And then they were to have a meal together with everyone in the house to eat unleavened bread. And God explains it here in Exodus chapter 12, page 54, verses 23 through 27. He says this, the Lord will pat, well, let's start in verse 21. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You will observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you will keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You will say to them, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses and the people bowed their head and worshiped. And then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. That's the historical aspect behind it. We understand that this was to protect them. Now in 1870, the president of the Gold and Stock Telegraph woke up and there was a burglar in his home. Frustrated by the amount of time it took to get law enforcement on the scene, he developed and launched the American District Telegraph to be an instant report for break-ins, for fires, and etc. And it is, that company is still with us today, and it's represented by this. That's the old sign that they used to have. You had a different knob, um, knob and it would send a notification. But now you've seen this. You ever seen that picture? In anyone's... Do you know how it started all the way back in 1870, like the birth idea of this? And it is like considered really the standard for home security. 
And you see that, and some people just buy the sign, right? <laughs> They're like, I can't, I'm not going to pay for that every month, so I'll just buy the sign and I'll stick it in my yard. What is that supposed to do? It's supposed to deter people from breaking into your house, right? So you stick it out in the front lawn, the burglar says, I don't want to go into that house. And it's supposed to deter them from coming in. It's meant to tell criminals this home is protected and those who live in the home are supposed to feel protected. The blood on the doorpost was a sign saying this home is safe. Something outside of this home is protecting it. And this is outside of your home. Listen, communion is a time where we look within and we see our sin. And if we're thinking Christians, we realize that the only reason we need a sacrifice is because God is holy. The only reason that there would have to be the shedding of blood for anyone is because God has a standard that we're not able to meet on our own. That God is holy. He is without sin. If sin did not bother God, there would be a no reason for a lamb to be slain. And there would be no reason for Jesus, who is called the Lamb of God, to be slain. Now again, if you're talking to someone who's not raised in the church, I once heard of a person who came in, they're having communion, and the pastor's talking about this, and the person's eyes got really big. And they came up to the pastor afterwards and they said, do you have a room in the back where you kill sheep? And he's like, no, Jesus is the one, he was the lamb slain for the sake of his people. We do not have a room in the back where I slaughter sheep and spread blood over anyone. But this is the historical context for it. God is holy. We are not. And so a perfect lamb must die in our place. And I found this interesting. I did some research back into the history of it. Do you know that the lamb had to be chosen, right? And so it was a young lamb, and the family would choose this lamb, and then the lamb would be protected. But listen to this. When Israel prepared to sacrifice the lamb, it would be inspected by the priests. And what would happen is they would then say, okay, this lamb is clean, and now you need to keep the lamb. And the lamb would be taken into the home and treated like a pet. And we're going to get back to the significance of that in just a little bit. But it would be treated like a pet in order to kind of help the, the children realize the seriousness of sin. This was not just a, a nobody. This was one of their own sheep. And so there was a love that was developed for it. But this is a cool connection. When in the Old Testament, they prepared to sacrifice the lamb, it would be inspected by the priests. What happened to Jesus before he was hung on the cross? He's inspected by the priests. Okay, so there he is, inspected by the priests, and he passed their inspection. It says that they couldn't get anyone to agree. And then he was inspected by Herod, and Herod said, I find how much wrong in him? No wrong. I find nothing wrong with this man. And did you know that he was also inspected by his brothers? Did you know that? You know, James, Jesus' brother, wrote the book of James. And he said, all of us sin in many areas. If any man does not sin in what he says, he is a what? Perfect man. And able also to bridle his whole body. Do you know what Peter said later? Let's look at this text. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus never sinned with his mouth. Even his brother said, Jesus is perfect. He has never said anything wrong. And just as the bread 
was without leaven for the Israelites. So Jesus Christ was without sin. So when we take communion, we remember that Christ was sinless, and he is sinless. Number two, what are we supposed to remember about Jesus? Remember the sacrifice of our Lord. This is when we look to the cross. We need to remember the sacrifice of the Lord. When the angel of death came, no home was safe if there was not a sacrifice of a perfect lamb. This was not just like, in some of the, one of the, let's see, one of the plagues, Egypt got it, Israel did And there's no, nothing else besides you're Israel, so you're good. But with this one, God said, if you don't spread the blood, what happens? They're going to, yeah, your kids are, your child is going to die. And so we have to remember that this had to be personally applied. But to help communicate the preciousness of the lamb, Jewish families would treat the lamb to be slain like family. They would hug it, pet it, feed it by hand, and do everything they could to make it feel like it belonged. One author that I read said this, For many families, especially for the children, this makes the killing of the lamb harder. Yet this difficulty is, an intent, is intended. It is only by learning to care about the lamb and seeing its precious innocence that its sacrifice to cover sin can be felt with the corresponding guilt over the fact that it had to die for us in our place, or in the first place. And when we hold the cup in our hand, it represents the precious blood of Christ. So later we're going to pass out the elements. There's two cups, take both cups, lightly pull out the top of the juice. Underneath there is the bread, which represents the body of Christ. And then you have the, ju the juice, which represents the blood of Christ. I once heard of a young candidate for ordination who, during a questioning, he was asked, what is the significance of blood in Scripture? And this guy said, I don't think it's that big of a deal. We don't really need it that much. In the Old Testament, it was kind of a big deal because you had the sheep, but blood is not that big of a deal. And you can imagine all of the mature pastors, they go, hmm, I have another question. <laughs> he got asked a whole bunch of questions on that point, and when it finally came down to time to recommend him, they said, you must study more on the blood of Christ. Do you know what Scripture tells us about what the blood of Christ does for us? I don't have time to go into all of it, but we're going to go through some of them. Number one, blood is for the forgiveness of sins. And if you got fast fingers, catch up here. We don't have all the verses there. Matthew chapter 26, this is page 832 in your chair Bible. Matthew 26 and verse 28 says this. I'm going to start in verse 27. He took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink all of it. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, how much forgiveness of sins is there? None. There had to be blood shed so that there could be forgiveness for you and me. Here's another one. Blood was poured out for many. One of the wonderful truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the, the ground is even at the foot of the cross. And what I mean by that is you could have been born and raised in the church your whole life. And you need Jesus just as much as the person who's never been to church in their life. The only way you or I will stand before a holy God is with a holy sacrifice in our place. And that, make, that is really nice for me whenever I'm talking to someone who says, you don't know my life. I'm too messed up. I've done way too many sins. There's no way Jesus can forgive me. And I'm just like, well, last I checked, I need Jesus just as much as you do. I was raised in the church, but without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, and Jesus' blood was poured out for 
many. Let's look at another one. The church of God was obtained by the blood of Christ. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, I'll go ahead and turn there. Paul is handing over to the elders at Ephesus, and he's charging them to be very careful how they lead as elders because Christ paid his own blood to buy the church. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, 930 in your chair Bible says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained by his blood. Do you know that Passover in the Hebrew was also used during weddings? That word, Peshach, would be used, that's the Hebrew word for Passover, would be used during weddings when blood would be poured or spread around the threshold and the groom would pass over or leap over the threshold with his bride. So if you ever seen a wedding or a young couple and they go into their house for the first time and the, the husband scoops up the wife and he what? Well, yeah, carries her across the threshold. You know, if he steps on the threshold, it literally ruins the entire picture. But I was going to have a picture for you. Every single picture that was free online, he was stepping on the threshold. And I'm like, that ruins the entire point. The idea was, and, and the the... The wife, the bride, she would wear a long dress and blood would be poured on the threshold of the house. And so that's where he would pick her up because he didn't want to get blood on her gowns. And he would carry her. He would step over the threshold. And it meant, I will protect you. We are now one in the family and I will provide for you. And so this picture here, it means, yes, God passes over our sins, but also welcomes us into his family. Through the blood of Christ. Do you remember John chapter 1 verse 1? He came to his own, his own didn't receive him, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become sons of God, children of God, welcomed into the family of God. Even in the Exodus account, God was both the judge and the deliverer. This is what I thought was cool. God was both the judge and the deliverer, just like he is with Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Don't ever get in your mind the idea that God is really angry at sin and he hates sin and Jesus kind of just appeases him. That Jesus is kind of like just in, in between going, God, chill out, chill out, chill out, chill out. No, God is the one who said, I'm going to provide the way for forgiveness while still maintaining my justice on sin. While still maintaining my seriousness of sin. So the church was purchased by his blood. And those who have believed are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already. Now this is why, back up real quick, I'll get there. There's like a whole sermon I can preach in this, just a tiny section. But this is why when we come to communion, what we say is, this is for those who have been born again. And you feel like I have no clue what born again means, I encourage you to just let communion pass on by you. We're not here to judge you for that, but Communion is a celebration of those who have received Christ as their Savior. They are now washed in the blood of Christ. And they have been born again. And so it's a time of celebration. So it's also a time of exclusion, isn't it? Because by definition, you're saying there are some who are in and some who are out. That is not very popular in our day and age. That there are some who are in and some who are out. But at the exact same time, it's exclusive and an invitation, isn't it? Because Christ died for how many? For many, Christ died for all, that all who come to him. So this is an awesome opportunity, especially if you're, if you're bringing someone who's 
like has no clue about Christ, you can say, in this celebration is an invitation to place your trust in Christ and receive the perfect cleansing that comes from the blood of Christ. So it's exclusive, but also an invitation. Okay, we'll go on. We have propitiation by his blood. Propitiation has been described as the wrath-removing sacrifice. That Jesus Christ has taken care of our problem. And so here's some big, here's some of the big words of the Christian life. Here's another one. Justified by his blood. Let's go to that one. Romans chapter 5. It's over a few pages. Romans chapter 5, 942 in your chair Bible. So we have propitiation by his blood. We are justified. Justified is a legal term that means declared righteous. All of our sins through the blood of Christ are, are gone because of what he has done and out of his sacrifice. Romans chapter 5 verse 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. I'm probably going to come back to this later, but at this point, what I want to challenge you with is, when we come to communion, is your main focus on what Christ has done or on the sins that you've had in the last month? Because I've heard sermons where, where the preacher will get up and he says, you know, this is a time you don't want to eat or drink in an unworthy manner. And you don't. So he says, this is a time for introspection. Is, are there any sins that I have done that I need to confess? But it's do this in remembrance of Christ. And as you work with believers and unbelievers, you're going to find one of the common struggles that believers have is, how do I know for sure that I'm saved? And they'll begin to look at their life and say, I have this sin struggle, and I have this failing, and I have this attitude that's dishonoring to God. And at communion, you have a time to remind them salvation was never by our works. It was the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And so every single month we have this reminder. And it must be important because like, as we think about what this means about God, it, it must mean that Jesus Christ is the ultimate person to be worshipped because this happens in some churches every single week where they're reminding themselves of this. In other churches, it's every quarter. We do it every single month. Around the world, millions of people take communion every single year. And it's been happening for almost 2,000 years. Jesus must be a pretty big deal for the church if they're supposed to remember him that often. And it also tells you the way of salvation is the same. 2,000 years ago to today. Don't let anyone ever tell you there's a new way of salvation. There's not. Okay, so you're justified by his blood. Here's another one. You're redeemed by his blood. I love that picture. I can preach a whole sermon on it. I have preached a whole sermon on it. It means to go in, to buy out, and to release from. That's the three meanings of the word redeem. It means you're in slavery. Christ comes into your slavery. And it says Jesus Christ took on human flesh. He became like one of us. He was born. He lived a life. And so he came into our world. Jesus didn't just go from heaven. I'm going to take care of it from heaven and I'm going to chill up here. He came and he lived down. But then it means to buy out that there is a price that had to be paid. And that's the price that Christ paid on the cross. The price of our sins. But then it means to free from. And as the picture of a slave who is bought by a kind master. And then the master says, you're free. Your slavery has been purchased. And Christ says, in my blood, I come in, I buy you out, and I set you free. 
Keep going. Next one is we are ransomed. I am like halfway through this list. list. I got to get going here. We are ransomed by his blood. You understand the idea of a ransom? That there's a charge on someone's head that has to be paid? Again, over and over again, there's a price that has to be paid. Our sin has a price. Our lust has a price. Our anger has a price that has to be paid. And Christ paid that by his blood. On to the next one. Reconciliation by the blood of Christ. Go to Colossians 1 since that's the text that we've been studying. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. We've got to start in verse 19 because that's where the sentence begins. This is page 983 in your chair Bibles. And if you're trying to keep up and you're like, you're moving way too fast, I don't normally go this quickly. But I have a whole bunch of verses this time. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. How many people do you know that have enemies? You're like, I got a couple I can think of. Most likely, most of the people you talk, about, talk with have a daily dose of enemy language. Do you know what I mean by that? If they have any sort of social media or any sort of TV news consumption, what they are hearing is that side's the enemy, that person's the enemy, that person's wrong, and they have a daily dose of hating other people. And the Bible says we are enemies with God because of our sin. But the blood of Christ has taken us from enemies to friends. Not just from enemies to okay, from enemies to friends. And that happens by his blood. And if you've noticed anything, we're just like the bad guys in every single one of these points. Have you noticed that? <laughs> All that we bring to the table is the sin that separates us from God. And what God brings to the table is the blood of Christ, which cleanses us from all sin and reconciles us to God. We're going to keep going. We are brought near by the blood of the cross. And so some people say, I'm really sinful. How can I draw near to a holy God? By the blood of the cross. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says, there is blessing that is brought to us by the blood of the cross. The next one, Hebrews 13 and 1 John 1, 7 says, we are sanctified by his blood. Sanctified means to be drawn closer to God, to turn away from sin. And so we are drawn near by the blood of the cross, sanctified by the blood of the cross, forgiveness of sins. Here's the next one. Forgiveness of sins is by his blood. It keeps going, guys. I got three more. It says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, that we are freed from sins by the blood of the cross. In the tribulation, robes are made white and conquered, and the conquering is done by his blood. And then lastly, the conqueror on the white horse has a robe dipped in blood. So can you imagine being that ordination guy? <laughs> and they say, go study it. And he comes across all of these references and he's like, oops. <laughs> the blood of the cross is a big deal. The blood of Christ is a big deal. But blood's not really something that we like talking about. But we need it. Some people have taken Leviticus 16.11, which says the life is in the blood, and thought that blood equals life. But the emphasis in Scripture over and over and over again when the word blood is brought up is about death. A death must take place for someone else to live. 
The emphasis of blood is not that we get Christ's life, but that he takes our sin because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And that's why it says, Paul says, you declare the Lord's death until he comes. And again, just think about it. if you had never grown up in church and you come into church and they say, we are celebrating death today. They're like, this is a weird church. Unless that death is what gives us hope for eternal life. And it does. Take this note. Bobby Jameson says this. He says, this also means if the Lord's Supper becomes an occasion for compounding your guilt, then you're missing the point entirely. The Lord's Supper proclaims to us that our guilt is gone, our debt is paid, our punishment has been taken, our sins are forgiven and forgotten. So look inward, but then look right back to the cross. And as you're, as you're talking with believers, as you're caring for other believers, as you're ministering to other believers, you're going to find that guilt is a burden that most people have. Because here's the thing. I know you guys a little bit, but you know yourself really well, don't you? You know all your sins. You know all your shortcomings. You know all your failures. You, don't, you probably have a standard that you would like to live up to yourself, and you haven't even lived up to that standard. And then I tell you, God has a perfect standard that's infinitely above your standard. And you're like, who then has hope? And I say, you do. Because of Christ and his blood. And there are many, many Christians who walk around discouraged and depressed because they take that look inward and then they stop there. And they keep looking inward until, like, I got to get my life right. I got to get my life right. I got to get my life right. It's like, look back to the cross. That's the purpose of what we've been given. Think about who comes to the table, though, and what they're reminded of. A worn-out mom who has lost it with her children. Can I get an amen? You don't have to. Who comes to the table, though? You have a worn-out mom who comes... She's lost it with her children, an angry man who yelled yet again, a disobedient child who is more than aware that they have sinned against God. You have an anxious grandparent who is worried about the world. You have a young adult whose screen time reminds them of how little time that they have spent in the word of God. And all of these take the bread and the juice together. And they may properly say, Father, I don't deserve to be here, but thank you that I am welcomed by the blood of your son. I found a, a little note. I think this is actually from Mark Goosen. He went to another church and liked it so good that he brought me their notes. <laughs> Never know how to take that as a pastor. <laughs> I didn't throw it away, though. <laughs> Here's a song. It's called Nothing That My Hands Can Do. First verse says, There's nothing that my hands can do to save my guilty soul. I cannot cleanse my filthy stains or make my spirit whole. For nothing but the blood of Christ can all my sins erase. I dare not claim my righteousness, but hide within his grace. Tis Christ who saved me from the depths. God's pardon I've received. I'm washed within his precious blood. My heart is sprinkled clean. And so we come to the table and we say, your blood has washed away my sins. Jesus, thank you 
The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Third point. We gather to remember the sufficiency of our Lord. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is the passage. Whenever we have communion, this is the passage that I typically go to, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. But this is when we, were, we look around. This meal unites all believers and excludes unbelievers. Again, our definition is that communion or the Lord's Supper is the church's act. So it's together, fellowshipping with Christ and each other through the bread and wine or the juice. And I want to tell you, just being honest, having communion every single month can easily become just something we do. And studying this week, I was humbled by the importance of communion and the fact that one of the main points is for us to recognize each other. How often, though, have I taken the Lord's Supper without thinking about the Lord's people? Do you ever do that? You take the Lord's Supper without thinking about the people here that are gods. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ and that we need each other. Paul says that's what happened in Corinth. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, page 958. He said that they had forgotten each other and that they needed each other. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. In the following instructions, this is, yeah, 958. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because you come together. Is it for better or for worse? For in the first place, when you come together as a church, that's why we do it in the church. I don't do communion in your homes. It's for the local church. When we come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. What, is, what do divisions have to do with communion? So I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. But when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one, notice the individualism here, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Do you not, dis or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I won't. And Paul says, when you come together, you're supposed to think of others. Look around. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're family. He says, don't come and be selfish. Don't look and think only about yourself. He says, come together in verse 17, 18, 20, and 33, and 34 to recognize the body, to examine yourself. One guy said, Paul's point about examining ourselves and discerning the body is not that we can only come to the Lord's Supper if there's no sin in your life. Instead, Paul's point is that we're to examine ourselves to make sure we haven't severed a nerve between love for Christ and love for people. And that hit me like a ton of bricks in the face this week. You ever taken communion when you were a little bit frustrated with one of God's people? We're supposed to be thinking of each other. Do you know that sometimes Christians are hard to love? <laughs> I was going to say, and you're one of them, but now it sounds like I'm pointing someone out. But, like, and I'm one of them. I am sometimes hard to love. <laughs> the people here that are saying amen in their minds. <laughs> And that's why what this is supposed to do is say, you know what? We're not always going to agree, but we have the same Savior. And we can celebrate and we can worship in that. You ever been 
frustrated by someone else in the church, you bet. But you come to communion and you're reminded that person who frustrated me is still going to heaven. I'm spending eternity with them because of Christ. The Lord's Supper should strengthen rather than scare off those who genuinely trust Christ and struggle against sin. Think about this. Imagine if you were, we, we have kind of a, a reflection time, if you would, where you're receiving the elements and it's a time just to be still. Think about in your life. And what if you said, God, search me and know me. Try me. Show me if there's any wicked way in me. And he says, you have a grudge against so-and-so. And you're like, yeah, anything else that I can just deal with between you and me, let's just do that. God says, yeah, you're holding a grudge. You're like, yeah, something else. He goes, that's my child, and you're not loving your brother or sister. Do you know what parents do when the siblings aren't getting along sometimes? They grab this one by the shoulders and this one by the shoulders and say, say you're sorry. <laughs> say I forgive you. Okay, now hug each other. And I heard one mom who said she made their children hug until they laughed. And so the children, you know, especially as they got older, they're like, they hug and they wouldn't laugh in about 30 seconds and they started chuckling because they're like, okay, we actually do still like each other. But how often do we come in and we're just so individual in our own Christian life and we have communion and we only think about ourselves? What if God laid on your heart and said, you have a grudge against someone? What if God laid on your heart and said, you're looking down on that person? You think you're better than them because of this. We've had, I've had several times conversations with people. They walk in and they say, I don't, I don't look like what I imagine the Christian to look like. And I say, welcome. <laughs> I'm glad to have you here. Neither do I. I haven't worn a tie in like six months. And so I had to unbutton the top one because it's like a choke collar up here. But anyway. What if he said, Father, search me. And he said, you're not connected to the body. You're living in isolation, waiting for others to come to you instead of you going to them. But oh, how we must smile when we take a hold of that cup and we look around and we see diff people different than us financially, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and we say, that's my brother bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. That's my sister loved and protected by the blood of Christ. The ground is truly even at the foot of the cross. And perhaps it would be easier to love each other if each time we took communion, we contemplated the fact that we are all bought and paid for in the same way. What then becomes of our boasting? Last point. The purpose is to remember the supper of our Lord. And this is a look ahead. This is a look ahead. The Lord's Supper doesn't just look back to the past. It looks forward to the coming of God's kingdom. This is a, we're anticipating something with this supper. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Matthew chapter 26 verse 29 says this, I tell you, I will not drink of it, uh, drink again of its fruit until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Here's another verse. It says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's something that we're looking forward to. Go to Revelation chapter 19 and we'll wrap it up. Revelation chapter 19, last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 19, it's talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is page 1039, if you're following along in a chair Bible. And uh, let me just give you a, a side, side note. There are sometimes when I talk to uh, ladies, and they, they struggle with the fact that in Scripture it says, whoever receives Christ becomes a son of God. And they're like, but I'm a lady. <laughs> I don't want to be a son. And then I just get to explain, okay, in Scripture, the sons are the ones that got the inheritance. So what this means is you have the full rights to God's, what God has given you in Christ. But now, guys, 
were brides. <laughs> and here's scripture about it. If you're like, I don't like that, now you understand how the ladies feel. <laughs> it says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, that there's a, there is a wedding coming. Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. Then I heard, verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of a mighty pearls of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself perfect. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so we look forward to when we will be with Christ. And so can you go back to those four points so we can just look at them? As we come to the Lord's Supper, remember the sinlessness of our Lord. Look within. What is the sin that you know of in your life? And perhaps today you're like, hey, I've never, ever asked Christ to forgive me of my sins, to cleanse me from all sin because of his blood. Today could be the day where you call out and say, God, I recognize I'm a sinner and I'm desperately in need of you. Please forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Cleanse me. And the Bible says at that moment you're born again because you receive it by faith what's been given to you. Because Jesus said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And people are like, what does that mean? But Jesus said the exact same thing to his disciples. And you know, Jesus didn't take his arm out and said, take a bite. Jesus handed out bread. It was a picture of trusting his sacrifice for them. And so what it means to eat the body and blood of Christ is not that this becomes Jesus. We're not killing Jesus over and over again. It's that we are trusting the body and blood of Christ is what cleanses us from all sin. And you can just look within, and then Christ says you're forgiven. All those things about the blood. And then remember the sacrifice of our Lord. Look to the cross. And then look around. We're believers, saved by the same blood. And then look ahead. We have a future coming for us. I want to give you an application. This week, ask a believer, what were you taught about communion growing up? And ask an unbeliever, have you ever taken communion? And if so, what is the purpose? Last Sunday, I encouraged you to ask a believer, what place does the law of God have in our life? And ask an unbeliever, how much debt are you allowed to have in heaven? And I had some fun with that question. I like went up to the bank, hey, how much debt are you allowed to have in heaven? And they're like, whoa, this is a trick question. <laughs> He's at a bank asking about debt. There's, there's a catch here. But I was talking about sin debt. I got to ask a couple of the guys that I was with, how, how much debt are you allowed to have in heaven? And the answer, every single one of them came up with the answer, zero. You're not allowed to have any sin debt in heaven. I said, well, what happens if all of us are sinners? There's got to be a way for every sin to be taken care of. The blood of Christ, which cleanses us from all sins.